Well, good afternoon. Sometimes in our life, our pride and our vanity cause us to look at ourselves and think about ourselves incorrectly. Maybe that's true for you. It's certainly true for me. And sometimes when I'm thinking of myself higher than I should, God uses a humorous moment to kind of bring me back into the rightful perspective and attitude that I should have. Uh, about three years ago, my friend Josh invited me to come on a trip with him to the Philippines and help teach pastors and missionaries a little bit more about the Bible. The church is really growing at a rapid rate in the Philippines. Uh, amazing things are happening, but they just don't have seminaries. They don't have Christian universities, and so their pastors and their church workers just need a little bit of uh, extra training in some areas. And so I was delighted to uh, get to travel to a new part of the world and experience a new culture. I think we got some pictures up here, and uh, we would teach all day. Uh, maybe like nine or ten hours, and uh, then uh, we'd go back to our hotels uh, at night. Sometimes when I'd be flipping through the channels, I would be really surprised at how much people in the Philippines love basketball. In my hotel, there was like ten different channels, and as you'd flip through the channels, they had Australian basketball, Chinese basketball, European basketball, uh, American basketball, the NBA. Like, this is just a country that loves basketball. And so the week's going really well, and I was kind of surprised on the second to last day, some students came up to some other professors and I in the cafeteria, and they said, thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for teaching to us. Uh, we just want you to know to bring exercise clothes tomorrow because it's our tradition that on the last day, the students will play our instructors in basketball, and the whole village will come and watch. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of thinking to myself, like, oh, I, we're the guests here. We should just be polite. We should do whatever the hosts ask. Uh, and then my friend Josh, that guy in the red shirt, he whispers to me, I just want you to know we do like eight or nine of these trips in the Philippines every year. And the students always want to play the professors in basketball. And pastors are old and fat, and they always kill us. So you're the re this is the reason I brought you on this trip. Like, tomorrow I just want you to destroy the students. And uh, I had known Josh, obviously. We had a connection. He knew I was good at basketball. So the next day we all show up, and uh, we did really well. Halfway through the second game, the, the students were like, no more, we quit. <laughs> we're not used to being defeated like this. And uh, the first reason why I did really well against those students is because I obviously played a lot of basketball growing up. Uh, I grew up in Chicago. The Bulls were the most popular team in the world at that time. Like we were on the Chicago playgrounds playing basketball two or three hours a day for a decade. So I, I knew what I was doing. But if I had to be totally honest, there's a second reason why I did really, really well that day. And that's because the average Filipino man is five foot four. Okay? So if you're like five foot eight and you were born in the Philippines, your whole life people are asking you questions like, how's the weather up there? Is it easy for you to change light bulbs? Did you play basketball in college? That's like, a, like if you're five foot nine, you're very, very tall. 
and I'm six foot three, so that really helped a lot. Right? So uh, the games are over. Everybody had a great time. I mean, there's like 60 or 70 students that come out on the court. They want to get their pictures taken with us. Uh, they want to be our friends on social media. Like at that moment, I was just filled with the exhilaration of getting praise from crowds of strangers. That was like one of the highest moments I can remember of just getting compliments, right? And just when I think like it couldn't get any better, one of the students came up to me and he said, you are a very special basketball player. And I'm kind of thinking in my head, I know, I know. He's like, you, you did things out there that I've never seen basketball players do. And I'm thinking to myself, yes, this is great. This is great. And he takes his finger and he pokes my stomach and he says, if not for this, I think he would be slam dunking. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I was just totally deflated, right? Because in one moment I'm thinking like I could be this international basketball star. And then the next moment I'm reminded like I'm not as young and athletic as I like to think of myself as being. So I start off with this story about a funny moment that really humbled me because the story of Jonah is very similar. The narrator or the author of Jonah, it would have to be Jonah. He's the only one that knows all the details of what happened in the fish and what his specific prayer was and what the response was in Assyria. So the author of Jonah would have to be Jonah. And of course, he's using exaggeration and satire and self-demeaning humor so that we learn from his wrongful example, so that we learn from his moment of humility, so that we learn from the way that his pride caused himself to look at the world and to look at himself so wrongly. So if you haven't already, please open up your Bibles to the book of Jonah. It's about the middle, a little bit after the middle of your Bible. It's kind of hard to find because it's only four chapters. So in most Bibles, it's only two or three pages. Don't be ashamed to look in your table of contents. And uh, let's focus our afternoon on a continuation uh, the two main themes that we talked about last week. We're going to be talking about the book of Jonah for four weeks. Today we're in our second week. And I just really want to emphasize the two main themes of what this self-depreciating story that Jonah is telling us is all about. The greatest theme in the book of Jonah, and it's everywhere in the story, is the inescapability of God's grace. When we say the word grace, we mean an undeserved forgiveness. And in every single nook and cranny of this story, God's undeserved forgiveness is there. And this should delight us because if God's grace and forgiveness and mercy is there for Jonah, it's there for us as well. And the second theme of today's story, the second theme of the book of Jonah, is that when we don't have the right heart, when we are thinking of ourselves in the wrong way, God's mercy is the corrective that God sends to fix us and get us with the right heart that we're always supposed to have. So let's start talking about uh, this first theme. Let's talk about how this story shows us the inescapability of God's 
grace. And I'd like to just talk about three or four ways that this story repeatedly shows us that just like if you were on a life raft out on the ocean and a whale surfaced at just an unexpected time and how that would just kind of overtake you, this story time and time again is about unexpected grace that surfaces where you least expect it. First way that we see this isn't actually in the story. You have to zoom out and kind of look at the whole Old Testament. But all the way back in 2 Kings chapter 14, 23 to 25, we learn that Jonah was a bad prophet. We learn that Jonah, as a prophet, giving God's messages, made mistakes and got it wrong. And so in 2 Kings 14, 23 to 25, Jonah tells this guy, King Jeroboam II, that he's going to win a specific territory in battle. But then in Amos 6, 13 to 14, this other prophet, Amos, he like reverses or nullifies the prophecy. In other words, the, th- the one thing that we know about Jonah in the Bible before this story starts is that he is a failed prophet. He stands up and he tells the king what God's going to do, but that's not what God's going to do. So God's grace, God's grace surfaces by calling and using a prophet who had already failed. And maybe you came to church today, maybe as you think about your spiritual, your spirituality, you think that you've been disqualified. Maybe there's something in your past that has you thinking that God is going to use you in lesser ways than he would use other people because of this offense or failure in your past. But we see here, as we talk about the inescapability of God's grace, that Jonah has already failed before the story even starts. God still calls him, and God still uses him. Well, as we get into the story here, in Jonah 1.3, it tells us, Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. We don't know exactly where that is. It's, there's three possible places that uh, scholars think it could have been. They're all in the Mediterranean. They're all really far from Jerusalem. They're all really far from Israel. There's actually a fascinating verse I found this week in Isaiah 66:19, where Isaiah is giving this prophecy, and he says there's three places on the globe, and it says, "Who have not?" God says, "Who have not heard my name or seen my glory?" That's pretty obscure. I wouldn't expect anyone to know that reference. But basically, earlier in the Old Testament, God has said through the prophet Isaiah, there's still a few places in this globe that are so far away from Israel that they've never even heard God's name. Well, Jonah's a prophet. Jonah knows the Old Testament inside and out. So when he decides to go to Tarshish, he's trying to go to the place that has never heard the name of God. That's rebellious. That's sinful. That's totally ignoring the things that God has called him to do. So God's grace surfaces by bringing that sea creature and redirecting Jonah, the rebellious prophet who's trying to flee to the place that doesn't even know God's name. And there might be something in your life that you are trying to run away from God with. There might be a place, there might be something in your life that you're trying to just flee from God and keep that area outside of God's control or authority. And if that's the case, what a beautiful reminder that God's grace surfaces in the areas that we least expect and redirects us back to the place that knows knows God's name. 
Well, as Bradford read to us, Jonah chapter 2 is this beautiful kind of meditation from Jonah that even though he sank to the bottom of the depths, like God is still using him. All throughout the Bible, when they talk about the sea, the sea is this far unknown place. Nobody knew about, nobody knew very much about the ocean back then. In Jonah 2, 5 and 6, he actually says, I got to the place where the seaweed was wrapped around my head. I got to the place of the roots of the mountain. That's a poet saying, I went to a place lower than anybody had ever been before. But God still speaks through Jonah, even though he had been lower than anybody else had ever been. I just want you guys to think about the lowest place that you've ever been. I want you to think about something that you've done where you just thought, I couldn't get any lower than this. And nevertheless, like God uses Jonah after that low moment. God speaks through Jonah in the story after his lowest point because after his lowest point, he gets rescued by the creature, vomited out on the shore, and then he goes and he declares God's message. So God speaks through Jonah even after his lowest moment. And God still speaks through Jonah today. As a pastor, I've attended a lot of Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, a lot of Celebrate Recovery meetings, a lot of Gideon's Bibles conventions. And, and when people stand up and give their testimony, probably a half dozen times, I've heard people just talk about really, really low moments of human nature where they've done things that, that I probably wouldn't be able to forgive and you probably wouldn't be able to forgive. And about a half dozen times I've heard those people say, but I follow the God of Jonah, I follow the God of second chances. And so even to this day, people identify with Jonah, not because he got it right, but because he followed the God of second chances. So God's grace surfaces by taking the guy who went lower than anyone had ever been and speaking through him, even after that low, low point. And the fourth thing that I want to point out where God's grace and un deserved forgiveness surfaces very unexpectedly. It actually comes from the whole point of the story that God is sending a prophet to Assyria. Let's talk about Assyria. In three different places, Jonah 1-2, Jonah 3-2, Jonah 4-11, God calls Assyria my great city. But to anyone who was familiar with the Old Testament, they would, they would be shocked and angered that God would call it his great city. Listen to what I read today as I was researching a little bit of Assyria. It says this, In ancient times, this civilization was centered at the city of Assur, and the ruins of which are located in what is now northern Iraq. The city had a god that was also called Assur, and the territory that the Assyrians controlled stretched from southern Iraq all the way around the Mediterranean coast. The Bible talks about how violent and bloody this culture was. You guys can read about that in 2 Kings 19.17. You can read about it in Isaiah 36.1. You can read about it in Isaiah 10.5 and 6. Almost every time that Assyria is mentioned in the Old Testament, it talks about how it would relentlessly destroy Jewish cities just with like bloodthirsty wickedness. Archaeologists have uh, actually unearthed a lot of ruins from the kingdom of Assyria. And there was this one king, I'm probably not going to say this right, but his name is uh, Sennacherib, Sennacherib. 
And they actually found this on his palace walls. This was like, think about how you decorate your home, the colors that you choose, the pictures that you have, the exact uh, animal head that you put above your fireplace. And this is what this Assyrian king chose to put on his palace walls. I burn my enemies in fires. I place their heads on pikes on the city walls and city gates. And many of my enemies I impale on poles. Like that's, how he, that's what he decorated his palace with. These were violent. This was a violent, wicked culture. So God's grace is surfacing when God demonstrates that there's a place in his eternal kingdom for even Israel's most violent and wicked enemies at that time. So sometimes we're a little bit hard on Jonah when Jonah's in the boat and he's like, God, I would rather die than take your message of salvation to this city. It's because he's trying to save the Jewish people. Like he doesn't, he doesn't want to extend God's favor onto their enemies because they're so wicked and they're so bloody. But God's love and mercy for these people is so deep that he gives a chance for the Assyrians to be saved. And if you think about the irony of that inscription on the palace wall, the way that the Assyrians would be saved would be believing in the mercy of a God who would allow his son to be pierced on a pole. Think about that. The reason the Assyrians, who were so violent they would just stick innocent people on poles, could be saved is because God loves us so much that he would one day allow his son to be pierced on a pole and take our place. And judgment. So in every chapter of this book, God's grace surfaces. And the message of the story of Jonah is that we can be like Jonah. We can be a person of second chances. The main message of the book of Jonah is that no matter how unlikely God's undeserved forgiveness is, it surfaces in the places and the times that we least expect it. So here's the problem. Like, what do we do when our hearts are like Jonah? Because no matter how forgiving and good God is, sometimes we're like Jonah and we're like, I'm, God, I don't want to hear it. God, I'm not going to do what you say. God, I'm not going to change in the ways that you're asking me to change. And from time to time, each one of us has the heart of Jonah. The second theme of this book is the way that God comes and changes Jonah's heart is with mercy. And I'd like to suggest that when our hearts are hardened in the wrong way, the corrective that God brings is to saturate our lives with mercy as well. So let's start to wrap up here in section two. Let's talk about all the ways that Jonah's heart is wrong. In Jonah 1.12, he says, God, or he says to the sailors, pick me up and throw me into the sea and it will become calm. I know that this is my fault and this great storm has come upon you. In other words, he's not going to apologize to God. He'd rather be thrown in the sea and die than actually do what God has asked. Later on in Jonah 4.3, Jonah says, Lord, take away my life. It is better for me to die than to live. And then in Jonah 4.8, when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint and he wanted to die and he said it would be better for me to die than to live. So at least three different times and maybe four times in this story, Jonah's heart is so wrong that he just says, God, I'd rather give up and die than change 
and do what you're asking me to do. In Jonah 4, 1-2, he shows that he loves his pride more than the well-being of the hundreds of thousands of people that live in Nineveh. Jonah 4, 1-2, Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry and he prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still back in Israel? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Right? He cherishes his pride more than the well-being of thousands of people. And then in Jonah 4, 6-9, in that kind of unexpected part of the story that's often left out, he talks about how he actually cares more about his comfort in this particular plant that he had been receiving shade from than than this city. The story kind of has this part that often gets left out. It says uh, in Jonah 4, 6-9, The Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and he said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plants? It is, he said. I'm so angry I wish I were dead. Remember how I kind of started off with that illustration of, uh, of sometimes we use humor to show other people how we had a wrong attitude or a wrong view of ourself? What's the deal with the plant? It's like a cartoon. It grows in one day and then it dies. I think Jonah is using exaggeration. I think Jonah is using humor and satire to show us this lesson that he learned. His heart was in the wrong place. He cared more about his comfort and he cared more about his pride than the well-being of hundreds of thousands of people. And now he wants us to learn from his mistake. Well, I'll just kind of throw out this question. like, If it's true that Jonah is the writer of this story, then he learned from his mistake. He became merciful. He became obedient. And if that's true, like what was it that God used as a corrective? What was it that finally broke through Jonah's wrongful heart? It's the mercy of God. It's the mercy in every step of this story. I want to ask you guys a question. Have you ever heard of the London Agreement on German External Debts? Has anybody ever heard of that before? All right. One of the most dramatic examples that we have of debt forgiveness comes after World War II. Uh, The comedian Norm MacDonald has this joke where he talks about how uh, Germany, which is a country roughly the size of the state of Wisconsin, decided to try to take over the entire world, not once but twice, within a 30-year period. It's pretty unexpected, but it's true. And in the process, German racked up an incredible amount of debt to the rest of Europe and to the rest of the world. But something really remarkable happened in February 27, 1953. Britain, the United States, and France all agreed to cut Germany's World War I and World War II debts in half, reduce interest on the rest of the payments that they owed, and forgive about $15 billion that were still owed. And uh, if you guys know anything about modern-day Germany. It's now approximately the 15th wealthiest country in the world. In other words, Germany is thriving economically at this point 
because Great Britain and the United States and France came together and said, we're going to radically forgive $15 billion that you owe to the world. Isn't that an interesting story? And if you guys remember back around 2009-2010, uh, Greece, the country of Greece, was like the first major country that declared themselves insolvent. In other words, the country of Greece had so much debt that it was determined by their economists that they would never recover. They were accruing more debt on the interest that they owed at a faster rate than they would ever be able to pay it off. And it was actually Germany that came in and brokered a relief act that allowed Greece to stay economically independent. Isn't that a beautiful story of how mass forgiveness to one party overflowed in the future for them to show great forgiveness to others. What the story of Jonah is all about is that from time to time we have a hard heart and we look at other people and we think, I can't forgive them. They don't deserve it. They don't deserve God's mercy. And of course, we're supposed to think back to the incredible mercy that God has shown to each one of us. And then when that mercy overflows out of our lives into the, others, into the lives of others, that process can repeat itself over and over again. So I want you guys to contemplate the great mercy that God has demonstrated to each one of us. Let's let that flow out of our hearts into the lives of others. I'm going to wrap up for the sake of time here because we've got two more weeks to talk about this. just want to give kind of a real quick uh, foreshadowing of what we're going to talk about. The, the Bible doesn't only give us the story of Jonah to understand what the story of Jonah is all about. For the next couple of weeks, we're also going to talk about that story in Matthew 8, 23 to 27, when Jesus finds himself in a violent storm out on the open water, and the crew is terrified, and he falls asleep, and he wakes up, and the sea is calmed, and the crew is awestruck. Does that remind you guys of any other stories in the Bible? It's showing us that Jesus is a lot like Jonah, but he's a better Jonah. And Matthew 12, 39 to 40, these people come up to Jesus and they're like, we want to believe in you, but could you just give us a sign? And Jesus says, the only sign that you're going to get is the sign of Jonah, and I'm going to disappear to a place that nobody's ever been for three days and three nights, and then I'm going to come forward with a message of repentance. And he says, I'm the new and the greater Jonah. Finally, in Luke 19, 41 to 44, we have this story of Jesus, and it tells us, that he cried, he wept over Jerusalem. In Jonah chapter 4, this prophet looks over this great city and he says, God, I want it destroyed. He has no empathy, he has no compassion. But then we find out that the better Jonah, Jesus, he weeps with compassion over the great cities. I'd like the worship team to come forward and wrap up our service. And as they do, I'd just like to uh, state one more time the main themes of the story of Jonah are so beautiful. The main theme of the story of Jonah is the inescapability of God's grace. All throughout the story, God's undeserved forgiveness for sinners and rebels and people that are running from God comes up at the most unexpected times. And if that's true in the story of Jonah, could it be true for us as well? That the areas of our lives that we want to hide from God, the places that we want to run to outside of God's authority, are also the places where God's grace are going to pop up 
at the most unexpected times to restore us back into the obedience that God wants us to have. And finally, the corrective that God uses when our hearts get hard like Jonah's is mercy. God is going to use people and situations to show you undeserved mercy at unexpected times to soften your hard heart of Jonah. And God is going to call you to show undeserved mercy and forgiveness to others to harden their hard hearts, to soften their hard hearts as well. Let's think about these two inspiring themes as we close with this final song.